Would you stand with me as we read? This morning's parable comes from Matthew 21. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders had rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. The word of the Lord. This parable is something of a perplexing one, and it's a parable that's really about authority. If we were to go back to about midway in the chapter, in chapter 21 of Matthew, we would see that there's an argument about uh, by what authority is Jesus doing the things that he's doing and saying the things that he's saying. And uh, Jesus kind of trips up the Pharisees, and the question doesn't get answered, but everything that follows in 21 is a dialogue about authority. Well, what kind of authority? What does it mean that Jesus and the religious leaders are arguing about authority? When Jesus and the religious leaders, or Jesus and anyone in Scripture, argues about authority, the argument is about who has the authority to interpret the story. Who has the authority to define that the story is going in its proper direction and to what conclusion it's headed to reach proper resolution? The religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, believed that the story should have a certain and peculiar outcome. And Jesus comes on the scene, and everything that he's doing and saying suggests, no, that the story is headed in a different direction, a very unexpected direction. This is the nature of the debate about authority. Right? It's not, when you hear the word authority, we sometimes think, who's in charge and who gets to boss somebody around? That's not what's on... uh, on the table here. 
It's on the table as who has the authority to rightly interpret what has come before and to rightly predict or rightly prophesy where the story is going. That's what this parable is about. It sits in the context of that discussion. And to start to think about authority and who has authority and how we interpret our own stories, I want to tell you the story of Shaka Sangor. Sangor, at the age of 19, just 19, became a murderer. He was a uh, drug dealer in Detroit with a significant attitude and a gun and found himself having ended the life of an individual and headed to prison. And he says, in one sense, that's the beginning of his story. That's not really literally the beginning of his story. Literally, the beginning of his story is in Detroit, being born to two parents who fought a lot. But while his parents together were together, he was on the honor roll, and he aspired to be a doctor. His parents, however, eventually divorced, at which point his grades started to go down significantly. He went to live with his mother, who was both verbally and physically abusive. And over time, Sangor moved away from school and find, found life to be pretty unpredictable, pretty scary. It got even scarier when at 17, he was just standing on a street corner and was caught in crossfire and was shot three times. Taking to the hospital, he recovered. He began to put his life back together, so to speak, at 17. But he came out and he said, there was no one there who, uh, who was there to hug me. There was no one there to explain that, yeah, this is scary, but let's work together to make sure you'll be safe. Right? Without any voices in that world, Sangor said, well, how am I going to make this world safe? How am I going to engage this place that's unpredictable and scary? Well, I'm going to become strong. And the way you become strong in my neighborhood is by becoming a drug dealer. And, of course, that led to the shooting, which occurred when he was 19, which took him to prison, and he still lived out the same narrative. I have to be strong. If I'm weak, I'll be taken advantage of. I'll end up shot again. And so uh, he became considered you know, the worst of the worst inside. He dealt drugs. And he ran numbers and ran gambling rings inside the prison to the extent that he was eventually confined to solitary confinement for seven and a half years. Can you imagine? Living, living in solitary confinement for seven and a half years. It was there that Sangor started to turn a corner. He said it came in pieces. It didn't come all at once. He said one of the most momentous things was he read the autobiography of Malcolm X and saw how Malcolm X had disciplined himself to move forward in a good way. He said, I'm challenged by that. I believe I can do it. And so he started to set up his cell as a a, uh, classroom. He collected books. He chose subjects that he would pursue. And he set up his day that an hour each day he would invest in a subject and then move on the next hour to another subject. He said another momentous occasion was receiving a letter from from his son. Right, who he had not really known, but who was growing up, and finally his mother told him why his dad was in prison for murder. He wrote his dad a letter, and he said, you know, mom's finally told me why you're in prison, that you have committed murder. And he said um, that that is not something that uh, you should do. He wrote to his dad, don't kill. Jesus watches what you do. Pray to him. And... Uh, Sangor says that was an incredible turning point in his life, not because he was religious then and not that he would become religious, 
but simply that he thought that uh, his son communicated somehow to him that what he did mattered. And so he would go on and, and, be, and read quite extensively, and he was moved by uh, you know, Aristotle. The unexamined life is not worth living. He said, I'm going to examine my life. I'm going to make it one of meaning. And so he becomes productive and refined and exits prison eventually and is now a youth caseworker in Detroit helping young people to try to choose a better path. And so here you have a picture of an individual who has taken his life, which was a sad story that became even sadder. He took a life and uh, went away and did prison time, but he reordered his life. He transformed himself to become something better. And so at one point he's being interviewed, and the person interviewing him says, so do you believe that a human being has this innate ability to recreate themselves? And Sanger says, absolutely. I am living proof that a human being has this ability. I've reordered my life. I've disciplined myself. And we have the capacity to be reborn, to make ourselves reborn. Sanger right. Right? That's one narrative. A narrative of an individual says, really, it's part of the human capacity that we have the ability to change ourselves, to redirect our hearts and our affections, and to, in what he terms, to engage atonement. It's atoned for a sin of taking the life of that individual. Is that really in our capacity? Or is Sanger just stealing fruit from somebody else's vineyard? And to answer that question, we need to examine the parable. The tenants represent a fairly common economic situation or arrangement in the ancient world. In fact, some of the chief priests were probably engaged in the exact same economic arrangement, which is someone would have money and buy land, but to plant between planting a vineyard and collecting crop that would produce something, either you sell the fruit or make wine, you're looking at at least four years. And so you would hire tenants to, to you know, take care of the land, farm the crops, watch over things while you're gone, and then when you start harvesting, you would go and collect what is your due, and you would pay out the tenants who are, who are working the land. Right? Similar arrangements exist today all over the world, including in the United States. The tenants, however, decide that they are entitled to more than they have been given. We might ask, who, who are the tenants? What is this parable about? And this is where we're going to have to nuance a little bit, and it becomes a little bit tricky, but... We need to say, first of all, that the parable is obviously about the religious leaders. Right? Even at the end of our passage, it tells us that the religious leaders perceive that Jesus is talking about them. Remember, this whole dialogue is about a question of authority that's been sparked by the interaction in chapter 21 with the religious leaders over authority. So, unquestionably, we have to say that uh, the, the story of the tenants here is a critique of the religious leaders. What do the tenants do? The tenants, they start farming the land. The master finally goes to collect, sends his servants, and they kill the servants. They stone the servants. They beat the servants. The master says, well, surely they'll respect my son. And so the master sends his son. And the tenants say, oh, this is our chance to gain the inheritance. Let's kill the son. And they kill the son. So there's a critique somewhere in here of what the religious leaders are doing. But I want to pause for just a minute and let's all recognize and start to wrestle with, 
that in one sense, this story makes no sense. Right? This is one of the reasons this parable is a little bit tricky. Right? Who thinks this is a good idea? Right? Like if you're a tenant and you're tilling this land and it's your livelihood, having a percentage of the master's income, and you sit down one day and say, you know what? If we kill his servants and kill his son, I bet he'll just let us have the vineyard. That makes no sense, right? It's, it's, it just boggles the imagination, right? You're in a good economic situation. Your needs are cared for. The master is much richer than you are. Any, anyone in the ancient world knows that the master is going to come collecting, right? Even when Jesus poses the question, the answer Correctly, what, are, what do you think the master's going to do? The master's going to put them to a miserable end. Right? They know the answer. It's not a logical, it doesn't, it's not a story that makes any sense. That's why it's in part frustrating. And yet it's, it's the exact reality of what's going to happen. The master will send the son. And the tenants, the religious leaders, will kill the son anticipating that the inheritance will be theirs or is already theirs. And so we have to realize that because that doesn't make any, any logical sense, we're missing a piece to understand the story. We're missing a piece to understand the religious leaders. And that piece has to be that either the religious leaders don't believe in the Son, that the Son is actually the Son. Right? They don't believe that the Father is going to act on behalf of the Son, which really is, it's not even worth stating because any Father will act on behalf of the Son. So either they don't believe in the Son, that He's telling the truth, or He's actually the Son, or they don't care. And I don't really think there's necessarily a third option. Maybe we can mix those options together a little bit, that they're not really sure about the Son, and a big part of them doesn't care. But this is the missing piece that is the only, it has to exist there for the story to make sense. And we know that it does, right? We know that the religious leaders are not going to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, which means this. If Jesus is the Son of God, if he's the representation of the Father, then to miss the Father in the Son is to miss the Father. In other words, the religious leaders are unable, incapable of recognizing the Father when he's standing right in front of them which means they've moved very far indeed away from the Father. Even though the religious leaders conceive of themselves as having a a very intimate relationship with God the Father, that relationship isn't intimate at all. In fact, they've pursued other loves and over time have removed themselves to the extent that they don't recognize the Father when He is actually present. Well, how did this all come about? Remember, we're talking about authority and authority as it's related to story. And for the religious leaders to move away from the Father, one of the things we have to observe is that the religious leaders decide that the Father isn't telling a good story. And they're going to move away from Him over time. Let me give you another parable of sorts, although this is a true story, about Hugh Hugh Eyre. About 30 years ago, Hugh Eyre is a remarkably accomplished climber growing up. Almost as soon as he can walk, he's climbing up uh, cliffs. In his early teens, he would free climb uh, one to 2,000 foot faces uh, without ropes. Right? He's a gift, one of the most gifted climbers of his generation. 
About 30 years ago, he's out with a friend. They're doing some uh, summiting of peaks in New Hampshire, and they're beset upon by a, a fierce blizzard. And they make a terrible decision, a decision that they couldn't tell you today why they made, which was as the blizzard was setting on, they decided to still, being so close to the peak, go for the peak. And as a result, they became snowed in. Uh, They were disoriented and lost their way. They didn't know where they were. And so they sought shelter in a cave that they found up on the mountainside. Uh, But they began to freeze to death. The frostbite was so severe in their legs that neither one of them thought that they were going to make it. And suddenly a person appeared in the cave. And they both actually thought it was an apparition when it appeared. But it was a woman who had been out snowshoeing and was a local and knew the area and was able to run for help and communicate. And a helicopter lifted them to the nearest hospital, which they began to be treated. And initially the hope was that they would save the legs, which looked kind of like human legs when they began. But not long afterwards, they began to decay and to turn black. And eventually, Ayer would describe them as something. He said, when you look at them, you knew they weren't human legs anymore. And they were so far gone, you, you couldn't wait to have them removed because it was death being attached to you. And so both legs were ultimately amputated, and Ayer began talking to his doctor in recovery and says, listen, I, I hope to get back to mountain climbing. I want to ride a bike. And uh, the doctor you know, says, whoa, whoa, whoa. He says, you're never going to mountain climb again. And maybe ride a bike, but you have to adjust your expectations for how life is going to go now. Well, Air decided, he would say that day, that the doctor didn't know what he was talking about and that he was going to figure things out. So he starts to play with prosthetics and changing legs and feet and using different substances and different plastics. And eventually he creates these feet which enable him to actually outperform other climbers. Feet that uh, are grippy. And they can be inserted in the crevice in a rock and twisted to, to gain your support to the extent that other mountain climbers would start to say, hey, Hugh, you're cheating. And he would say, well, listen, at any point you want, you can, you can amputate your legs. And you can have the competitive advantage that I have. And he would quick to point out that no one took him up on that. But the story that he lives out is an interesting one because what he decides in the hospital as he's recovering, he says... He said, one day I just realized, I decided my body is not broken. My body is not disabled, right? He's both legs amputated. And this is what he says. He says, uh, I just live in a place where the technology does not exist to meet this problem. And eventually the technology, I will participate in creating the technology that will solve this problem, right? My body is not broken. It is not disabled. We just need better technology. And so he starts down this road, invents his own legs for climbing, starts getting fascinated by math and physics and engineering, pursues training, becomes this gifted, now leads the department at MIT in prosthetic design and development. But what he says is very interesting. He says humans are not disabled. And by this he means any dis... He talks about depression. He talks about blindness. He talks about losing limbs. Any disability that you can think of. He says, humans are not disabled. A person can never be broken. We can transcend all limitations through technology. We will end disability. He says, in this century, 
We will end all a disability as it's related to loss of a limb because bionics will produce limbs that are either equal to or superior to human limbs. Pretty cool. Maybe he's right. But will technology heal every disability? You see, Hugh Hare finds himself in a story which he doesn't like at all, which is he makes a bad decision and he loses his legs. And so he's faced with, I don't like the story. How am I going to redeem the story? How am I going to be saved in the midst of the story? And what does he decide? Technology is what's going to save me. And so I, I give everything I have to technology and believe that technology will ultimately redeem every broken part of me. Now, I told you that was a bit of a parable because it's very much like what the religious leaders do. It's very much like what you and I do. You have to realize and understand, we all need to be reminded that Israel finds themselves in a story they don't like. And you can't, you can't push this aside, nor can you be overly condemning of Israel. In this sense, you know, you, you exist in a story in which God promises, hey, I'm going to make you a great nation. Not so much. We're not very great. I'm going to, um, I'm going to be present with you, my people. Well, your presence left the temple a long time ago and hasn't come back. And um, I'm going to make you triumphant over all the nations of the world. Yeah, we pretty much get kicked around by every nation in the world. So you've got these big, lavish promises of God throughout the Old Testament story. And you've got Israel actually existing in the story and saying, yeah, not so much. Not feeling that, not experiencing it. it, hasn't really happened that way. And so over time, what does Israel do? Well, if this story isn't going to go the way that we expect it to go, then we're going to start to chart it our own way. And so yes, we worship Yahweh in a certain sense, but more and more we're going to give our hearts to other things. And the more they do this over time, the farther they move away from God, even though they may appear to be very close to God. And the religious leaders are such an excellent example of this. You know, in just a moment in Matthew 23, Jesus is going to take up the seven woes, which is the longest, most detailed charge against the religious leaders in the New Testament. And what does he say is true of the religious leaders? These people who perceive themselves to be intimate with God and giving up their lives as sacrifice for the people, and yet at the same time, they hate the way the story has gone. And are trying to put the story back on track. You realize that's how the Pharisees form as a group. The Pharisees, as they originate, a couple centuries before the time of Christ, is that they believed that Israel had become too wayward, which it had. And they recommit to Torah. Right? It's actually a pretty noble beginning of the Pharisees. But as they're trying, what they're doing is trying to force the story. Oh, by our obedience to Torah, these promises will come true. And this is what the Pharisees and the religious leaders believed in the first century. If we can just produce the right degree of obedience amongst the people, then all of these blessings that we're waiting for will come true. And so they engage in a perceived obedience. But Jesus comes on the scene and he says, Yeah, uh, you know, you're very clean on the outside, but on the inside you're very dirty. You know, you're a shiny goblet, on the outside, but inside, sludge. He said, really, you're hypocrites because you'll, you'll say the right things often, but you don't do the right things. You don't commit to doing what you say. And um, not only that, but you, 
over time, you've neglected the really important parts of the law. And what you've done, actually, is choose the easy parts of the law for you to fulfill. You do your tithing, right? You do run through your worship, and you love to be admired for it. But you know the big deal? You know, like mercy and justice and holiness in your heart? Those are the things you've neglected. And so the religious leaders, even as they've perceived a degree of holiness and righteousness, what they've really done is say, oh, we're going to make the story happen the way we want it to happen, but they can't. And even in their frustration, they move away from God. They can't cling to Him in part because they're disappointed. They're frustrated that God is not coming through for them, that He's not meeting them in the place where they desire something. And is not that the place that we find ourselves all the time? When do you do something that you are ashamed of? When do you do something you're guilty of, you feel guilty over? Is it not, at least in part, when you are frustrated that God is not coming through on His promises or delivering the story to which you want to be found in? And in that frustration, then you grant yourself license or you look for salvation somewhere else. Not unlike Sangor, who says, I will achieve salvation in self-help and discipline. And Ayer, who says, I will achieve salvation in technology. We reach for something else and direct our love there because we think that it will be salvific. Now, if you're doing this, you can't help but have your holiness diminish. You can't help but have your righteousness diminish. You can't help but be dirtier on the inside. So, you know, ask yourself some basic questions about how you really, you're relating to God. Do you feel like a hypocrite? Right? Let's just take the charges that he levels against the religious leaders. Do you feel like a hypocrite? Do you find yourself often saying one thing or exhorting people to one thing and doing another? Or do you recognize that you appear a lot cleaner on the outside of the cup than you are on the inside? And that's kind of okay with you. Because it's all about image. You really don't care nearly as much about how you actually exist in relationship with God as you care about how you appear to other people. And so you're, you're very quick to shine the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup, well, nobody sees that. Except God. And what about the, the law? And by the law, I mean, let's, let's redefine the law as it is redefined through and in Jesus Christ. Are you being mindful of the, the, the law in its big form or just kind of focusing on the smaller components that you find easy? So, for example, I say, well, I read my Bible today and I haven't engaged in any gross sin. I'm, I'm pretty righteous. I'm good to go. I get to do whatever I want with the rest of my week. Right? That sounds... It's a lot like focus, the religious leaders and focusing upon minor parts of the law but neglecting, well, are, am I not called to, to pick up my cross and follow after Christ? Well, that's quite a bit different. Am I not called to sacrifice all my rights and privileges because I'm a slave to Christ and do everything that I can for the benefit of the gospel? Well, that's quite a bit different than these little things that I'm referring to as well. And so if you answer yes to any of them or to all of them, which surely we all must to some degree, we must realize that in some capacity we must be choosing a different story and opting to, for something else to, for salvation 
rather than running to Christ. Because if we run to Christ, then things look differently. Those charges can't be made and we experience untold peace and joy. Which is the other way to measure it and think about it, you know, just to sit down and say, yeah, you know, what's my heart been filled with this week? Anger? Frustration? Depression? Disappointment? Or has it been filled with love and joy and peace and patience? Right? One means that you're pursuing a kingdom and a salvation outside of Christ. Right? The other, of course, means that you're pursuing salvation in Christ. What was true of the religious leaders and what is so often true of us is that even in the midst of their story, they fail to comprehend that God has much bigger plans in store for everyone. He has much bigger plans in store for you. He had much bigger plans in store for Israel. He has much bigger plans in store for the world. One of the places this is captured the best, and I really do mean the best. You get another horse and his boy illustration, and by which you can tell what we're reading at home at night. Uh, but, uh, you know, as many times as I've read the Chronicles of Narnia, I have never failed to read through them and not be moved. But this is the other thing. This is the first time I finished The Horse and His Boy. It is my least favorite of all of the Chronicles, until now perhaps, which is interesting. So you've got the main character, Shasta, who grows up. Uh, he's orphaned, and he grows up in this fishing shack in a foreign country, Uh, adopted by a mean old fisherman who abuses him and essentially treats him like a slave. And then he runs on the escape, but he faces all kinds of dangers. He's chased by lions and faces ghouls in the tombs uh, outside of a city and is scared to death and never has enough food to eat or water to drink. His life has been one of poverty and uh, for him, one of, uh, of sadness. And so he's going on um, about this towards the end of the book as he's, as he's walking, to, uh, walking alongside um, this, uh, this great uh, lion who has appeared, which is, of course, Aslan. And this is, so you've, you, we don't have time to read it, but it's really great because uh, Shasta goes on and on. He's like, wah, 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 wah. Woe is me. Poor is my life is so hard. Uh, and, but it really is, Right? By any measurement, it's a hard life. And this is, uh, the lion says, I, I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Right? So here's this long spiel by Shasta about how unfortunate he is. And Aslan says, I don't call you unfortunate. Uh, Shasta's like, really? Okay. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions? Right? Let's just start with the lions. And it goes on. And, uh, um, and Aslan uh, says, actually, you didn't meet many lines. You met one line. And, uh, and Shasta says, how do you know? And this is what Aslan says. He says, I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight, to receive you. All right, what a beautiful passage. And that Erebus who's going through, woe is my story, woe is my life. And the lion says, you don't understand anything. 
in all these things that you feel like you've been threatened or were in danger, I was there. And I've moved the story about in the way just that it should go, in ways that you can't possibly comprehend the grace that is coming to you and the glory that will soon be revealed in Shasta's story. The line has been dictating it the whole time. And the best part is the next thing Shasta says, says, wait, if you're the line, you're the one who scratched Erevis, the girl who gets wounded. And, and uh, Aslan says, yes. And he goes, but why, why would you do that? You see, you know? And uh, the lion says, uh, I, I only tell everyone their own story. Right? And there's, there's profound truth in that we so often are measuring ourselves by each other's stories. And yet Jesus has a story for each of us, and that story will be played out as it's played out. And to worry about someone else's story is only to distract you and frustrate you and to be a lack of production of any fruit in your life. And this is what we realize as Jesus moves out of the parable and comes to his conclusion. He says the most astonishing thing to date, which is we've been wrestling with how in the world could the religious leaders kill the son? It doesn't make any sense. And yet we find out at the end that the cornerstone was always to be rejected. This was not always God's plan, but it is pleasing in his sight. That the son had to be killed to accomplish what the father intended. What do we make of that? On one hand, we want to say, oh, it's the failure of Israel that they will actually crucify the Messiah. And at the same time, God is saying that this is the way the story had to happen. That the son had to hang on the cross, that he had to be put to death. And to state this, to make this point, he's quoting from a couple different places in the Old Testament that talk about it's almost this, this cool, mysterious stone theology. That there's a stone that's going to be rejected, and that stone that's rejected will become the cornerstone, the most important stone by which everything else is built. And he's also drawing from Daniel, where Nebuchadnezzar has this grand vision of a statue that has a gold head and a silver torso and bronze thighs, and then iron for uh, shins, and but the feet are made of iron and clay. And the vision is such that a stone is cut, not by human hands, and it crushes the feet of the statue so that the whole thing topples. And then the stone mysteriously grows into a mountain. And then the mountain fills the whole earth. The stone is Jesus. He's coming and said, this is who I am. And Commentators have always wrestled with what is the statue in Daniel, and you've got as many takes as you have church theologians, right? But it's interesting that at the, um, in the description, the feet are, made, are, are said to be weak because they're composed of two kingdoms. And there is the reality, as theologians point out, that any time that we would combine the kingdom of this world with the kingdom of God, we would make it weak. We would not rely upon the strength of the one kingdom that will reign forever, the one mountain that will fill the whole earth. When we opt for different narratives, when we try to fill in the story we want it, the way we want it to go, we combine kingdoms, just like the religious leaders did in their day with Rome and with Herod. And it was a kingdom that was fragile, and it was a kingdom that would be broken. Are you frustrated with your story? Are you frustrated with the way that God plays out redemption? 
What does it mean for you to not live in frustration but to bear fruit? That is the difference at the end of the parable. That the the vineyard is taken away from those who have failed to produce and share fruit with the master and given to those who will produce fruit and share it with the master. And of course, it is this critique that, that the kingdom is being taken away from Israel in the historical sense and given to the church, to a mixture of Jew and Gentile that will now carry on the mission of God. How do we exist in that in a right way to bear fruit? Remember, what would we say to Sangor, the man who imprisoned, who was imprisoned and who has righted his life seemingly invests in others, and he has chosen a noble path that should be commended, but has he found life? Has he found abundant life? No, he does not drink from a well that ceases all thirst. And it is only a matter of time after he invests maybe in 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 kids and sees 20 go the wrong way and he finds himself empty. He finds himself unable to continue to offer from himself what he thinks will bring life because he sees it fail so many times. And even in his nobility, he does not do it to the honor and glory of God who has provided everything for him. And so he steals from the vineyard, much like we would in the sense of the religious leaders. But as well, is all of this goodness able to bring back the man that he has killed? Right? He speaks of atonement. And in one sense, how dare he? How can he, in all his nobility... If he is noble all of his days, how does he atone for the murder of another human being? How does that sit with the family that grieves the loss of the individual that he killed? Or, we talk about Ayer, who says all disability is going to be solved by technology. Technology is a wonderful thing, and again, he's chosen a noble path, and I hope he's incredibly successful and ends as much suffering as he can. But to place that kind of investment in technology is silly. We've done it before as we entered the 20th century. And then technology gave us chemical warfare for World War I. And then technology gave us the A-bomb for World War II. You see, neither self-improvement and discipline nor technology solve the real problem, which is the problem of the human heart. Our human heart is broken and shattered and in love with ourselves and will not find rest and healing until it falls deeply in love with God. And that is why God comes and says, you must reject the cornerstone. You must pour out your hate and your violence on me. And Jesus says, I will drink it. It is part of my cup. And by me taking on your hatred and your violence and your sin, I will redeem you. And that is the only place from which life comes. It is the only place from which joy is generated in peace. And if you long for it this morning, that is where you must run. Are you looking to self-improvement and discipline? Are you looking to technology? Are you looking to anything that offers you salvation apart from Jesus Christ? Repent this morning and run to the cross And give your anger and your frustration and your, yes, your hatred of him to him. So that you might hear him say to you, I forgive you. And it's only in that love that our heart is actually transformed. And we realize that all of the dreams 
that we have for ourselves, all of the hopes and aspirations we have for our own lives and our own stories, they're nothing but a puddle of hopelessness compared to what Jesus desires for us. So let us run and be real fruit bearers. Let's pray. Jesus, for your uh, mercy and compassion, you stand among those who would scoff and who would challenge your authority. And in the midst of that challenge to your authority, uh, you would reveal and know full well that you must be rejected. You must be torn down. Your body must be offered up as the destruction of the temple. But that it would be raised up in three days. And in this, there is life and there is hope and there is mercy because you have forgiven us our sins. And so we pray that you would help us to run to you and to believe that you desire deep and wondrous things for us and that we too often are distracted by nonsense. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and encourage our hearts and that you would help us to see where we so often try to make what we want to happen happen in foolish ways. And we put obedience on the shelf except in small ways. Help us instead to be clean on the inside as well as the outside. Help us to mind the bigger things of the law. And may hypocrisy be a word that is distant from our lips. We thank you for the privilege of participating in the vineyard and pray that you would make us good fruit bearers. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.